From the Institute for Research on Public Policy, this is the Policy Options Podcast. I'm Claire Desjardins. Today's show is a special lecture on the puzzling persistence of racial inequality in Canada. The lecture was delivered by Queen's University Professor Emeritus Keith Banting and Deborah Thompson, the Canada Research Chair in Racial Inequality and Democratic Societies at McGill University. Their remarks explore why Canada's robust welfare state, which includes universal health care and myriad employment and training programs, as well as a race-neutral immigration selection system, official multiculturalism, and the Charter, have not been able to mitigate racial economic inequality. Now, here are Keith and Deborah. Today, um, Deborah and I want to talk about uh, or build from a recent paper we published uh, and um, in doing so, we hope to open up an area of conversation and perhaps even provoke a little. So <clears throat> our starting puzzle, if you will, or question, or curiosity, is that um, Canada is marked by the persistence of considerable racial economic inequality. Uh, despite the fact that we have built a complex architecture, policy architect architecture since the Second World War, <clears throat> we built a welfare state, perhaps not the most ambitious one, but a respectable welfare state. We have universal health care. We have race-neutral immigration. We are an international leader in multiculturalism. We have a charter of rights and freedoms, which is a distinctive modern charter which includes exemptions for affirmative action programming. Despite all of this, it is clear that there are persisting racial economic disparities across multiple generations. It's not a problem that's disappearing. <clears throat> what is also interesting to us, more interesting to us, in fact, what we're going to concentrate on, is that this reality of racial economic disparities has not emerged as a central driver in our politics. It has not emerged in the restructuring of social programs that we've gone through in recent decades. And so our question is, why not? Why have we not engaged with this issue more directly? So <clears throat> my first task, and I apologize, um, this is totally unreadable. I should have turned it into something more elegant, but couldn't. Um, and so let me just tell you a few things that I think uh, emerge from this. So um, over 30% of racial minority populations would live in poverty based on market income alone. And for other groups, the number, and for some groups, the number approaches 50%. The tax transfer system does work in redistributive terms. There's no question. The problem would be greater if we're not for the redistributive structures that we do have. But the, these structures reduce poverty more for the rest of the population than it does for the racial minority population. These are numbers here. I apologize. Anyone can have the slides if you're interested. Um, and there are obviously significant differences among racial minority groups, with the problems of being, uh, persistence being most marked among uh, second and third generation black, black community, Arabs, and West Indians. Um, there are uh, significant differences, um, I'm sorry, I've already said, uh, persist through the third generation. And one finds similar patterns. We could have talked about differences in wages, 
There's similar sort of evidence there. <clears throat> Excuse me, precarity or precarious income and precarious employment. Health. I don't need to belabor the differences in health and health outcomes, which were so graphically uh, illuminated by the pandemic. And there are differences in wealth. Uh, we have less effective data in Canada on disparities in wealth. I note that in the United States, <clears throat> disparities in wealth is rapidly becoming one of the central foci of debates over racial economic inequality, building a case towards, <clears throat> excuse me, towards reparations. So, um, having set that tableau, the question then becomes why? And I'm going to let my colleague do all the heavy lifting theoretically. So those are the basic facts. And the questions that Keith and I seek to address in this paper and in our broader work uh, are twofold. First of all, why is it that Canadian policies don't address racial, economic equality, inequality more directly? And secondly, why is it that racial economic inequality hasn't emerged as a more central feature of our policy debates? And we answer these questions in two parts. So first of all, if you're looking at the, the frameworks and the problem definitions and the policy tools that have been developed since the post-war era, particularly that era from after the end of the Second World War to about the 1980s, we argue that those policy regimes were never actually intended to address racial economic inequality directly. During this period, the Canadian population was, frankly, overwhelmingly white. If you look at the 1981 census, Canada is 96% white, even as cities like Toronto and Montreal have seen incredible uh, changes in our demographics. On the whole, the country is, is still largely of European descent at this point. And these policies were largely created both by and for a European descended electorate. But in the 1990s, Canada uh, increasingly diversifies rather rapidly and racial economic inequality becomes more evident and increasingly inappropriate given the normative egalitarian discourses of the era. And yet racial economic inequality is still not addressed in our policies. All core government programs, virtually all core government programs are retooled in some way during this era beginning in the 1990s but not in a way that pays attention to racial economic inequality. So why? The answer that we have uh, is about the role of ideas, path dependency, and policy drift. So we contend that the universalist norms that we inherited from the post-war era were deeply embedded in our policy architectures. And these norms tend to render both race and racism as either incidental or antithetical to the operation of Canadian liberalism, small l liberalism. So in effect, we're making an argument about path dependency, the ways that policy choices from the past help determine what options are viable in the present and the future. Scholars have also used the concept of policy drift to refer to the ways that agents might actively choose not to respond to environmental changes or the ways that those agents are purposefully obstructed from responding and putting policy changes into place. Instead of talking about policy drift in the paper, we talk about something we call policy inertia, which results from institutionalized ideas and ideologies that tend to frame problems in particular ways that reflect the past 
better than the conditions of the present. So it's not that actors are choosing not to respond to new conditions or that they're being actively blocked from making changes, but rather it's these universalist principles that underlie Canadian liberalism that frame policy problems in ways that just aren't conducive to direct attention on racial economic inequality. And we trace this argument through four major policy regimes. Uh, Keith will begin with our first two. So we start with the structure of the welfare state. Um, there's no question that the welfare state that Canadians built in the post-war decades made Canada a fairer place. There's no question that racial economic inequality would be greater if those programs did not exist. Reflecting Canadian universalism, racial minorities were incorporated into our, lar our large social programs relatively straightforwardly on a colorblind basis. <clears throat> there, are, there were some temporary restrictions for people who had come to Canada, particularly in the pensions area. But by and large, <clears throat> racial diversity was not a significant part of the framing or the structure of the debate in the post-war era. Now, this actually may be a good thing because in the post-war period in the US and in subsequent decades, race did was a central part of, of the politics and social policy, and it was a negative force, a toxic force, running through the politics of social policy development in that country. That has not been true in Canada. By and large, um, our welfare state programs have operated on a universalist basis, on an te te teaching people, sorry, treating people as individuals in a colorblind way. That was the basic approach to public policy that we inherited from the post-war era. And what is interesting is that although those post-war welfare programs have gone through several cycles of restructuring, um, the politics of race and the particular issues of racial economic inequality have not emerged as a central part in those big rethinks of our social policy. So we went through a cycle of retrenchment in the 1990s and the 2000s, and I would argue the politics of race paid very little, uh, played very little role in that uh, process of retrenchment, unlike some other countries where racial tensions around immigration did con were conducive to cuts in, in welfare programming. But in the Canadian case, um, the issues were framed in a universal language of generic workers and generic families. Social investment was the discourse that was used in that period. Some called it the human capital model. And it was an argument in favor of moving away from redistribution and income transfer programs towards human capital. And in that, there wasn't an acceptance that there were certain groups that would be very vulnerable in this kind of transition. But when you look at the groups that were defined as vulnerable, they were single mothers, Aboriginal peoples, people with disabilities, and recent immigrants. The idea of that racial minorities who have been here for some time might be particularly vulnerable to these transitions, and they were uh, vulnerable to the cuts that followed, was not part of the discourse. The whole, uh, you can work through the documents of that era with considerable attention and not find a re reference to race and racial inequality. 
Since then, since 2015, we've gone through an expansionist phase in our social policy. It's actually quite striking how many new initiatives there have been in social policy. Child benefits in 2015, uh, 2015, the rolling out of, uh, <coughs> excuse me, of um, childcare, expansion of the Canada Pension Plan, increases in GIS, uh, work on long-term <laughs> long residences, uh, a disability benefit just introduced, perhaps dental care. This has been an expansionist period, relatively uncelebrated for reasons I don't fully understand, but an expansionist period in our social politics the politics of race, the particular position of racial economic inequality and racial minorities has, been, has not been part of the case for expansion. Let me give you an example of childcare. <clears throat> Probably the program which helped uh, racial minority families most. Childcare was introduced on a purely universal basis, helping middle income uh, families generally. Um, the Liberal Party published a fascinating nine-page document on what they meant by the Child Benefit Program and how it would operate, very detailed, by the standards of most uh, party documents in an election context, very sophisticated. The word poverty does not appear. The language is helping the middle class and those working hard to join it, and certainly there's no reference to this being a good policy because it might help reduce the gaps in racial or the extent of racial economic inequality. So the welfare state has gone through multiple cycles, but we've not actually focused our attention on the implications for <coughs> racial, uh, racially, uh, economically um, limited racial minorities. Now the immigrate, I'm, how am I doing for time? <laughs> We're good, okay, go! Now the second field, so that was the first field we look at, policy domain. Second domain is immigration policy. The part, um, oh thank you. You're welcome. I'm forgetting the slides. Uh, so immigration policy is a perfect example of the move to liberal universalism in Canada. It was a period in which we finally removed explicit uh, references to race. In the, we introduced a point system, which was, in effect, the operationalization of liberal universalism. And in the early decades, this uh, was a very successful program. Immigrants uh, came. They in, in, integrated relatively effectively. The poverty rate after 10 years was lower for immigrants than it was for the population as a whole. This uh, regime, however, began to stall. The integration regimes began to stall in the 1980s and 1990s, precisely when Canada became more racially diverse. And here we had new immigrants coming with high skills, uh, but they were um, unable to utilize those skills effectively and, there were low, and face lower relative incomes compared to their predecessors. Poverty rates in between 1980 and 2005 went up for immigrants and down for the Canadian born. We went through a major period of restructuring. Governments took this problem seriously. The fact that new waves of immigrants were not integrating effectively into the labor market. 
Throughout this process, they framed the problem as an immigration policy problem, not a racial inequality problem. And so the debate was about foreign recognition of credentials. It was about language skills. It was about the extent to which workers needed Canadian experience. I don't know how many debates and workshops I went to in that period where the same list of factors were presented as explaining the problems, never did anyone suggest that maybe the problem had to do with racial discrimination in the labor market. That was never one of the factors on the list. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, um, if, they, if uh, the immigration authorities even had believed that word, that was a major problem, it's not, it wasn't an immigration policy domain. Immigration departments did not have the tools that would have allowed them to tackle racial economic inequality more generally. They deal with immigrants who are, uh, until they became citizens, become citizens. But after that, immigration authorities have no place. So not surprisingly, our immigration authorities fell back on traditional tools to deal with the problem that was emerging. They shifted from worrying about the integration side to the admission side of their portfolio. <clears throat> they gave much more <clears throat> stringent, <clears throat> I apologize for my voice. Um, I'm talking too much maybe. Uh, <clears throat> so they um, ad <clears throat> adopted much more stringent language testing programs for people who wanted to immigrate to Canada. Uh, they uh, raised the standards in a number of areas, and in, most importantly, they said pre-existing offer of employment is going to be critical increasingly. So the issue was always framed as an immigration issue. It was never seen as a racial economic inequality issue, <clears throat> never framed as a problem potentially of racial discrimination beyond the immigration phase of people's lives. Over to my calling. Just in time. I know that you're all thinking, but multiculturalism. So let me talk about that for a few minutes. Uh, Canadians and especially Anglophone Canadians have come to embrace multiculturalism as an integral part of our national identity. But let's be clear, uh, the policy that was created in 1971 was never about the integration of racial minorities into Canadian society. Uh, and since 1971, the policy has evolved in really important ways. And the consistent thread of this evolution has always been the equality of cultures on the one hand and the politics of recognition, which I like Charles Taylor wrote about on the other, rather than wealth, income, or economic equality. During the 1980s, uh, some funding did in fact go to local initiatives to counter racial discrimination but by the 1990s and increasingly into the early aughts, the orientation of multiculturalism policy shifted <laughs> to a more explicit focus on integration. And here in Quebec, where multiculturalism has always had less traction, public debates continue to swirl around the reasonable accommodation of religious minorities and debates over secularism in the public sphere. So on the whole, the multiculturalism policy, which we value so much, reflects the historic centrality of ethnicity, culture, and language in Canadian politics. And as a result, critics, myself included, worry that multiculturalism has, in fact, 
just work to convince Canadians that we live in a tolerant society and that racism is only something that ha happens somewhere else or it's something that happened long ago, thus deflecting attention away from the realities of systemic racism here and now. The crowning achievement of Canadian post-war liberalism was undoubtedly the entrenchment of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which has been undeniably successful at providing redress against a number of discriminatory state policies. But we argue that the Charter and the wider rights regime really have not worked to challenge the economic dimensions of racial inequality. So for their part, the courts have taken a relatively guarded approach to the idea of social rights. And as a result, anti-discrimination provisions provide no guarantees of racial economic equality, sorry, of racial equality on economic terms. Human rights commissions that exist at both the federal and provincial levels do extend protections to, uh, against racial discrimination in private spheres, in areas like employment and education and housing, but the models are all reactive, they're complaints-based, and they focus on retroactive redress for individual human rights violations. And therefore, those regimes are fairly limited in their ability to tackle what is a systemic issue, that is, racial economic inequality. The more relevant uh, policy that we have yet to mention is, of course, the Employment Equity Act. Uh, and here we have a partial exception to our argument. In theory, the Employment Equity Act could have worked really well to address racial economic inequality, but the policy is limited in several important ways. As we know, the legislation only applies to federally regulated industries, which together is about 10% of the Canadian workforce. Similar legislation that exists at the provincial level is remarkably, uh, remarkably um, uneven, which means that most employers in Canada are in fact not covered at all by the legislation, though this is partially mitigated by the federal contractors program. So while the employment gap over the past 35 years between men and women has dissipated significantly, the same is not true of the underrepresentation of Indigenous peoples, uh, persons with disabilities, and racial minorities, including in the federal public service, where one would think the Employment Equity Act would work best. <clears throat> So we should mention, of course, that the policy is currently undergoing a review that is being led by my colleague, Adele Blackett. And so time will tell whether or not it can be retooled uh, to have stronger policy goals and include stronger enforcement mechanisms. So we are now almost exactly two years out from the largest mass uprisings we've ever seen in North American history. Um, and we have some evidence that over the past two years, uh, these entrenched ideas of universalism that we argue that we that we argue about in our paper are shifting at the edges. Over the past few years, we've seen some initiatives that specifically target racial minority groups, including the creation of the Anti-Racism Secretariat at the federal level, the PCO's call to action on anti-racism, equity, and inclusion in the federal public service, and efforts to address anti-Black racism and anti-Asian anti racism, and also renewed calls and some initiatives, including those at the provincial level, to collect racially disaggregated data. And so we find these developments promising, but there's also good reason to be skeptical. And to be fair, I, I think that I'm probably more skeptical than Keith 
um, racial progress has always, without fail, been marked by a disproportionate backlash. Uh, and I think it's safe to say that we are at the beginning, not the middle, and not the end of that backlash now, as evidenced by the truckers' convoy, uh, the use of woke as a disparaging slur, and also the limited reforms we've been able to make in any area of criminal justice. Moreover, we note that many of the initiatives that were designed, that, that seem designed to address racial economic inequality have been put in place rather quietly. We wonder if this kind of reform by stealth can really initiate the kind of substantive change that's required to achieve racial inequality in either our or our children's lifetimes. Okay, so time to uh, bring this together. <clears throat> our puzzle was actually kind of simple when you state it. Why have we met, not made more effort to reduce racial economic inequality in Canada? Now, to be, you know, we, we accept upfront racial inequality would be worse without the social programs and the universal structures that we have been discussing. And some racial minorities have made major progress, no question. But stability and poverty rates against, across generations for some racial minorities is actually deeply embarrassing given what Canadians tend to think this country's about. Our answer is that this is a, not a simple local recent problem. It's built into the structure of our public policy and our political institutions. The post-war social programs were designed for a different country. They embedded deeply the story of a universal uh, approach to public policy. It was a period in which we delegitimated race as a category in policy and pol political debate. It was not the way we would handle issues. And as a consequence, we built into our institutions, into our structures, into our ideas, and into the toolkits we have given uh, in, um, government uh, decision makers, we institutionalized a set of ideas and tools which have tended to deflect attention away from racial economic inequality. By delegitimating racial categories and governance, we, we, we perhaps saved ourselves from a lot of big, nasty problems, but we also deflected attention from uh, an ongoing inequality that matters. <clears throat> so one of the things I want to make clear uh, is the relationship of our answer to racism. We do not deny that there's real overt racism still in Canada today. But our argument does not depend on that. Our argument does not turn on racists doing racist things. Our argument turns on the idea that we have, from the post-war period, embedded certain approaches to public policy in the way in which we organize ourselves. And that is, in effect, almost a, a, a textbook definition of structural raci racism or institutional racism. So it's not the people who have been doing, in government have been doing nasty things. It's that the uh, inherited way of framing issues and the inherited toolkits 
don't direct attention to what has become, uh, I would argue at least, <clears throat> an embarrassment that has yet to be challenged. Now, how would one move forward? Well, clearly in the, simple, the simplest way to move forward is actually to use the toolkits with, uh, which our um, framing um, facilitates. So there's no question that if you wanted to reduce economic inequality in Canada, generally through an enhancement of redistributive programming, that would help poor racial minority families and children. There's no question. If you go that way, if you could generate enough energy, you could make progress. But we are <clears throat> skeptical that you would be able to do that, make real advances on racial economic inequality by that alone. We suspect deeply, I, I, I probably, I, I think equally de deeply, uh, <clears throat> that more targeted, <clears throat> economic instruments would be required. Now, we're not prescriptive in the paper, and I'm not sure if you ask us what should be done, we would have a coherent answer. But we're convinced that continuing to rely on a universalist conception of Canadian society and Canadian public policy on its own will not respond to the real economic challenges this country faces. Thank you. I have many, many, many questions and comments and suggestions, and I'm sure we could debate these. I think we will probably, time permitting. But uh, my question is the following. Um, you, in, in your presentation, you contrast, in a way, you, you contrast a universalist approach uh, which delegitimizes race. And it, even we could say you didn't say it, but it, well, it was implicit that delegitimizing race was seen as a progressive thing to do. Uh, as uh, being blind to race was a way to avoid racism and to de decontract old racism by saying we're, we're beyond that. Uh, but uh, I want to take you somewhere else. Um, racial inequality is a subspecies or could be seen as a subspecies of a broader type of situations that we could call or Charles Tilly calls categorical inequality, inequalities between categories of people. Uh, they can be uh, defined by race, but they could be also Catholic and Protestants or Francophones and Anglophones or men and women and so on and so forth. And uh, in the Canada's universalist model, we have addressed uh, very explicitly at least two important categorical inequalities. The first one was mentioned by Deborah is the uh, inequality between men and women. And uh, the second one uh, is the inequality between Francophones and Anglophones, uh, which was uh, particularly important in the politics of Quebec. Uh, in addressing these inequalities, we have 
gone beyond this sort of blindless universalism that is suggested by Keith. Uh, we have been aware of some inequalities of a categorical nature. And my question then is, what can we learn from what has been achieved? Because much has been achieved. Uh, inequality between men and women is not uh, perfect, but it's better than it was. And French-English inequality in Quebec is basically a story of the past. Uh, and so major progress has been accomplished. And perhaps there are things we could learn, perhaps with race we cannot do the same way. Or perhaps we could. I'm just turning the question to you. Do you want to start? I, I can. I mean, I, I, think you're, I think you're absolutely right. I think, um, I think the Official Languages Act has in a generation eradicated socioeconomic disparities between francophones and anglophones it's an incredible it's really it really is incredible perhaps unparalleled um, uh, work of legislation and if there was the the political will and if we were willing to deal with uh, the consequences right that 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 kind of policy doesn't come without uh, consternation without its challenges without groups uh, of, of people, including the, the dominant linguistic majority that did not like it. Um, and if we could do that kind of thing uh, for racialized minorities, yeah, you know, I, I think that it could be incredibly successful. Do you think that a country that is still, for the record, 77% white is willing to put those kind of changes in place, right? Do you think that a, a country that doesn't, where racial minorities do not have the, the, the political, uh, the kind of political entity that Quebec has emerged to be in this federation, right? Like with, with a concentrated, um, like Francophone majority population that can fight for its rights in, in uh, a federation predisposed towards recognizing uh, Francophone people's rights in the federation. Uh, whereas racial minorities are, are dispersed across the country. Uh, and so that kind of concentration of, of, of political power doesn't exist in the same way. Only, you know, at the municipal, at the municipal level, which are creatures of the provinces anyway, and so that power is diluted. Um, in, in my most recent book, I actually write about, like, Quebec as being a success story in, in many ways, right? The idea that uh, a, a minority group could could fight so so adamantly and so well to protect its identity and, and language in an anglophone country. It's incredible. Um, and I, it makes me wonder, because in part my book is about, you know, blackness being black in both Canada and the US. It makes me wonder, knowing very well the history of the United States and the history of this country and the ways in which like we have you know, attempted to uh, expunge, expel, and eradicate you know, people of color. Uh, it, you know, it makes me wonder what kind of world that my grandfather would have lived in, my father would have lived in, I would have lived in, my children would live in, had those same opportunities been available to us either in the countries where my ancestors are from, which is the U.S., or, or the one where we live now, which is Canada. And I think it's an open interesting question um, that and I like to think about it a lot. I think that uh, that model is, is, has been quite successful and has um, 
work the way that it was intended. Yeah, the only thing I would do, I would add uh, <clears throat> to Deborah's response, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, is that why, the question then becomes why has it, if it works to equalize um, Quebec incomes with the rest of the country, and if it has narrowed gender differences, why has it not worked in the case of racial economic inequality? Because there's been much more stability in those. So Deborah's answer is basically that size matters, that large groups in the population are able to mobilize in ways which uh, have more force. So Quebec, Francophone Quebec, clearly mobilized in ways itself internally, and also in terms of the relationship with the Federation, and over a generation, did the gap just disappeared. And women, the gap is narrowed. But that's also a very large constituency. And so uh, the, the reason, one reason why we've not seen more action may be the size of the community and the relative uh, lack of political clout of the communities involved. Um, but so that's one explanation. The other is it's just going to be tougher because Canadians are not comfortable using the language of race. They aren't comfortable with race, I think, targeted programming. It would, governments would have to be um, much more strategic about race than about gender. I mean, I think that's absolutely clear. And that was Deborah Thompson and Keith Banting with their special IRPP lecture, The Puzzling Persistence of Racial Inequality. If you'd like to get in touch with us about the show, we're on Twitter under the handle at IRPP. Thanks for listening.